I'm Sandy Hirsch, professor and director of the School of Library and Information Science at San Jose State University, and it is my distinct pleasure to welcome you to the second annual California Library Association lecture, which is sponsored by our school. Last year at the CLA conference in Sacramento, we debuted this lecture series, and I shared with you my vision for the school as the new director of the School of Library and Information Science at San Jose State University. But this year, I'm very pleased to, deliver, um, to welcome Stephen Abram to deliver this CLA lecture to share his views and vision of the future of libraries. I imagine most of you are already pretty familiar with Stephen and his many contributions, but I do want to share just a few things with him because he's got a lot of things he wants to share, so I want to make sure I don't spend too long because we could go on for quite a while. Um, but he's currently the Vice President for Strategic Partnerships and market, uh, Markets for Cengage Learning. And uh, he's held many professional leadership roles, including past presidents of three professional associations, the Special Libraries Association, the Ontario Library Association, and the other CLA, the Canadian Library Association. <laughs> he, he's a highly sought-after speaker who regularly speaks internationally. In fact, he's been invited to speak in every one of the states in the United States, except for one, West Virginia. Now, what's up with that? <laughs> um, we're extremely happy that Stephen was able to squeeze us into his heavy speaking schedule. And on top of all of this, on top of all the other things that Stephen does, he's a prolific writer. He writes books, he writes articles, he writes columns, and he has a very, very popular uh, blog, Stephen's Lighthouse, which I'm sure most of you already read, but if you don't, you should. And um, at San Jose State, we're very fortunate to have Stephen as a member of our International Advisory Board to help advise us in shaping our future of the school. And as one of Library Journal's top 50 people um, influencing the future of libraries, we're very fortunate to have Stephen here with us today to share his thoughts and ideas for the future of libraries. Let us all welcome Stephen Abram. I'd like to thank uh, San Jose State University for inviting me, and I get great joy out of uh, working with them over the last few years. You know, you know, half of all the library school students in North America go to San Jose. That's pretty awesome. Did a conference last week that I helped, uh, or I participated in, and I don't know. I, I called it. I said to Sandy, "This is libraries Woodstock." They had 159 countries lined up 24 hours a day for, what, three days with six or 7,000 people in it, like, awesome. <laughs> like, God, like, you know, our little cult of librarianship is suddenly going just major international. And so, and then we sit there and we occasionally find librarians who go, oh, there's no place like home, no place like home. God, this stupid bitch. Like, honest to God, the nostalgia for the old days of libraries. Let's go back to the libraries where they were segregated. Let's go back to the libraries where our fingers had to tiptoe through catalog cards. Oh, I love the smell of books. Yes, I love the smell of mold, dead human tissue, and toxic glue. Like, honest to Pete. And now she's going, there's no place like home, no place like home. I'm sorry, you're an orphan. You're in a dust bowl. When a tornado is coming, your guardians go in the root cellar and lock you out, and the bitch in town is trying to kill your dog. Like, get a grip on yourself, you stupid fool. And then, and the, you know, it's a wonderful movie because it's really the story of two women fighting over shoes, <laughs> which <laughs> we might recognize that. 
<laughs> when we play spot the librarian at the airport and when we arrive. <laughs> so we're looking into this whole space right now of how do we get past this? The climate of poverty, oh my God, everything's bad. It's not. It's not. We got what we wanted. Librarians inspired Sergey and Larry to invent Google, right? Stanford, we have uh, Gene Garfield there, and they sat there and met Gene Garfield and said, gee, if the most important articles in academia are the ones that are most popularly cited, could we take that technology and put it on websites and say maybe that's how we'll build a better website than using a directory? We inspired them. When we met David and Jerry, when they were finding, founding Yahoo, we, Jane Dysart and I met them when, when we were building the Internet World Conference in the first bubble. And uh, they were at a little table with a little tent card on there, and it said Yahoo. And we said, what does that mean? And they said, well, it means yet another hierarchically oriented object. And I'm going, well, you're going to have a branding problem there. <laughs> <laughs> and they said, but we're having a problem. Every time we turn around, we're having to rebuild our index. And we went, well, that's a newbie mistake. You need librarians. Every librarian knows you build the biggest taxonomy and you just put, if you don't have 10 books, you put it in the biggest taxonomy possible. So Library Congress or one of the big indexing services. He said, how do we find these librarians? So Jane helped them hire 85 librarians to rebuild Yahoo so it would work. Boolean logic. He quit school in grade six, George Boole in Ireland. Went to the library and learned how to invent math. The math that runs everything we do. Because the librarians did inter-freaking library loans and showed him how to publish. Then Oxford and Cambridge were so freaking embarrassed they had to give him an honorary PhD because God forbid somebody smart didn't have a PhD. <laughs> so we got what we wanted. We got the, what we needed. Now, let's do something with it. This is our life. You know, not these guys, like, you know, this could be whoever's trying to cut your budget, but, you know. <laughs> Sad part is, like, hello, California. You're too poor to actually submit your data to know what the hell's going on in the rest of the freaking country. So all the other states there, we know that like 92.8% of Minnesotans have wireless availability in their library, and you don't know squat. 90.3% of people in Georgia provide access to jobs databases. Gee, do you think that's important in this recession? 80% of North Dakotans provide IT training to patrons. Oh my God, you know, 65% of people in Rhode Island have access to ebooks. <laughs> you don't know. So this year you might want to get something going so you actually provide the data so you can compare yourself to the rest of the country. You don't have an action figure as a governor anymore. You might, like, you know, so get your data to actually work. E providing access to e government sites. This is the number one thing to talk to Tea Partiers. You want to downsize government? There's only one thing in America that the state doesn't pay for that is in every town. Every town doesn't have a Starbucks. Every town doesn't have a post office. Every town doesn't have a McDonald's. Every town has a library. And it's staffed by brilliant, talented people who are open every hour and accessible to every race, culture, language, and helpful. Try and get that at the post office. So, we got brains, good brains. We know how to do stuff. We can position ourselves really well in this environment. Is there still life for libraries in a web-based world? Yeah. We've got some great gifts this year, some really good gifts. That's what I want to talk about. You know, Wikipedia, I know everything. Google, I have everything. 
Facebook, I know everybody. Internet, without me, you all know nothing. Electricity, keep talking, bitches. <laughs> so, yeah, all this stuff is pretty awesome. You find stuff. It answers the who, what, where, when questions of life beautifully. The internet, the web engines, do really, really well on those who, what, where, when questions. They suck at how and why questions. Really, really bad at it. The internet answers as many questions in half an hour as all the librarians in the world answer in 30 years. You are not a scalable solution for reference anymore. Important questions? Why should I take this drug? How do I write a business marketing plan for a small business? How do I choose my next car? They need you. So how do we reframe our conversation with users about what we do right? Are we future ready? This is what worries me. Ever been in one of these library committee meetings? What happens if it works too well? I swear we're the only profession that fears success. <laughs> like, you're in a meeting and someone says, what if circulation doubles? Shit, that's awesome. <laughs> like, just get over it. I had people saying, well, we don't want to put the online holds on because it might work. <laughs> what if it doesn't work? What if it blows up in our faces? What if somebody sues? Like, you don't get snow. That's about the only thing libraries get sued over. Tripping on the sidewalk because people wouldn't shovel it. If, if, if I used to help run Thompson Legal and West Publishing. If libraries were getting sued a lot, we would have had a law reporter on it, and you'd all have one. You just don't get sued a lot. What happens 10 years down the line? Well, if you know that, come work for me, because we're trying to figure it out. We, we're textbook publishers. You want to see scared people? Come look at a textbook publisher. <laughs> How are we going to get to the future? We've got to figure something out. So, yeah, we got a lot of good stuff. And we got to get somewhere else. We're not in the right place yet. How do we fill that gap? Well, it's a lot of 2.0 stuff, right? 2.0 is about the relationship of people with information and engagement. It's about the social life of information. Suddenly, the social tools are there to do what we do, to support learning, community, engagement, all the things that matter to us. We suddenly have the tool set we need that's not about retrieval, it's about learning. It's about research. It's about the engagement with information. It's about inserting librarians in there as the professionals who are going to make a difference in people's lives. Now, I don't want to make a difference telling them where the toilet is or telling them, like, you know, here's the population of China. I want to make a difference making sure that kids are learning. We've got these wonderful kids now. Like in, the general, in general, the IQ of our children is up about 20 points over the boomers. They're much smarter than us, you might have noticed. <laughs> now, with these smarter kids, like, you know, we took the lead out of the paint, so when they were chewing on their cribs, they weren't <laughs> chewing lead. We took the lead out of the gas, so they were breathing air without lead. We took the lead out of all the solder, so when they boiled water for them, it didn't get lead in it. So we got a bunch of smart kids. And then we have people denigrating them, saying, oh, look at that, they can't spell. Look at that texting language, they just can't spell. Yeah, it's really stupid to actually create a new language collaboratively with your entire cohort of people. What, what a dumb thing to have done when you have a lousy keyboard on your phone and you can actually say, great, and reduce the keystrokes. Stupid. How do we deal with these kids who have little Ferraris for brains? Right? It's great to have a Ferrari for a brain. It's also, I can put, what, have we got 200 people in the room? I can put 200 Ferraris out front, and I tell all of you, run outside and drive them at 250 miles an hour. You can't. 
How do we train an entire generation, the largest generation in history, it's bigger than the boomers, we lost a few to drugs. <laughs> How do we train an entire generation to reuse the brainware they got, the smartness they have, to actually get this information and you make decisions effectively? And then how do we find the courage to do that? Because if we don't find our courage and suck it up, there are people who are going to do it for us. And they're going to say, gee, the best way to get information is to allow search engine optimizers, racist organizations, politicians, and commercial entities decide what should be on the top page of search results in Google. So how many of you are allowing your OPAC to be manipulated by Stormfront? to allow your databases from Gale, preferably, but ProQuest and EBSCO, to be manipulated by advertising entities? How many of you say, gee, if the answer is in a black neighborhood, let's change the answer? Or if the questioner is in a black neighborhood, let's change the answer? So during the Obama and the McCain campaign, you change the answers based on the racial makeup of the neighborhood using geotagging on the SEO. You all know that, right? I buy uh, geotag sets. So I change the answer on, I can buy a geotag set of every university and college in North America and change the Google answers and the Bing answers on that space. You all know that. That's, how else are you going to make $2.2 billion in profit every 30 days, as one company does, Google, unless I'm selling it up? Who's more important? If you're watching a TV show, if you watch CNN, you will see an ad where you can open a door on a bathtub and not have to lift your leg to get into it. That is not a show that is being watched by young people. <laughs> they, <laughs> it's for old people. The average CNN viewer is 58. The average newspaper reader is 59. And it's going up one year at a time. Their circulation is going down one funeral at a time. If you watch Gossip Girl, they don't advertise bathtubs. They don't advertise Depends either. I go into one public library that had Field and Stream on the boys' reading section in the teen area. I opened up the back of it. I said, see, their advertising depends. And it's not so that you don't have to get up when you're in your duck blind. It's because they're old. If you're selling advertising, you're selling advertising, the youth market is more valuable. You can charge four times more for click when that click comes off of a geotag code for university campus. I pay more to have my search results happen on university campuses. So that tells us that it's being manipulated. So I can buy geotag sets for the entire US Census. I can buy geotag sets for where you are. That's a different business model. You are not Google's customer. You are their product. Your students, your customers, your users, your cardholders are the product that Google serves up. Now, do you think you think of them differently? Do you see your students or your people as the product, or do you see them as somebody with a need who needs to be satisfied? So in a world where you're trying to differentiate yourself from Google, and you say to me, when I'm building products, when I was at ProQuest, or you say to EBSCO, or you say to all these people, I want my search interface to work just like Google. And I look at you and say, well, how do you want me to manipulate it based on the needs of people to say Obama wasn't born in the US? So type, where was Obama born into Google? And you'll get what search engines and optimizers make sure that you don't get a truthful answer. Do you do that in libraries? Like you do it in a database, a news database, you get articles telling you about the controversy and search engines in that space. 
Our value system is we want truthful, balanced information that's high quality. When I want to go in and say, where's a pizza place? Yeah, I think it's great that geotagging gives me a pizza place in Pasadena, not the most popular pizza place in Chicago, because that's where the most popular one is. But when I actually ask, what, how do I develop a small business marketing plan in Los Angeles, I'm going to get 20 pages of search engine optimized data of people I can pay to write a small business marketing plan for me, not what you offer in your library. So until you find your courage to tell people that they're being manipulated and repositioning yourself against Google and Bing, the only two scrapes left, then you're going to get screwed because you're not speaking up about what your differentiator is. Your differentiator is you. So when we have a culture of libraries who won't wear name tags and won't put their faces on their websites, we got a culture of assholes who actually don't sit there and say, I'm really good at something. I'm the best business researcher. I know how to do this stuff, and I'm on Facebook, so you can friend me. I keep two Facebook accounts. One was my professional presence, you know, Stephen Abram. And then there's the other one, Stevie A. So if you happen to be into S&M, you don't have to put that on your professional account. You can keep a separate account that doesn't let your users know your little peccadilloes. There's a wonderful California librarian, Patrick Sweeney, who runs a cafe press site where you can buy t-shirts with this on it. Or you can buy other ones that do other things. But there's all sorts of great uh, logo wear in cafe press. And uh, I love this one. Cutting libraries in a recession is like cutting hospitals in a plague. Find the risk that you want to take. Who's the happier goldfish? Now, maybe this goldfish wants a partner to follow him. But he's in a bigger bowl in a more comfortable place. I don't want 20 years from now to be digging up library directors on an archaeology site and finding this. <laughs> library directors aren't there to manage the library. They're there to invent and direct the future. So I don't want us dying and finding the bones with their head up their ass. We need to find our future aggressively, and we got to get there. We need to know what libraries are really for. We're not for retrieval. We're for community. I've collected 50,000 stories and put them into a database and we put a Kinevin software on top of it to say what is the underlying psychographic profile of why people use libraries. Number one is community. Number two is learning. Number three is engagement. It's, they don't say books. You ask someone to tell a story, you take that story and uh, write it down to words, put it into a pattern recognition system. It's the same, way, it's the same software they use to predict 9-11. It's the same software now that they use to look at uh, eBay results and say, we got 300,000 emails a day in eBay. Do you think people are reading that, or do you think they're using software to say, what's the pattern? Are they happy or sad? Sorry. This is library marketing. We're about books, 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 nothing but books. That's like calling Chanel number five, smelly yellow liquid. You are not about books. You are about the powerful relationship and engagement strategy you have with your users where you make them better. There's a huge difference to saying, I tell stories to children, than saying, when I tell stories to children, and you know the wonderful thing where you put you know, a storytelling librarian on a chair that's half the size it needs to be, so that their knees are up around their ears, and they're holding, they're going, you know, so someone here has a puppet there. So you, 
you got your fist up the ass of some animal, usually where the wild things are, because it's just, I always think it's funny, just a librarian with where the wild things are, ironically open between her legs, and a giant monster there, and she's telling a story in squeaky voice and grunter voice and all that stuff, and you see 20 kids, all of them ADHD and completely wild, completely enthralled because this storyteller is awesome. And yeah, they tell stories to kids. But they also show young mothers who are professionals how to tell a story. And they've forgotten because they're like 28 now <laughs> or 32 as we have our children later. And how do you give a young mother permission to actually make a squeaky voice or a tough voice? How do you sit there and say, gee, we got a whole shelf full of Goodnight Moon. And you want your kid to be smart? You know, go borrow Goodnight Moon. There's a mouse on every page. Did you know that? And say, we're not going to read Goodnight Moon to you, but that's what we're going to train you to do. Go read Goodnight Moon to your kids and play the game of finding the mouse. And I can tell you, when you find that mouse, that pre-reading behavior says you can find print on the page eventually. But you're not knowing print yet. And, by the way, when you come into Storytelling Hour, you're going to meet other women who have children the same age as you. So we build community. We build your confidence up. You can say, my kid's doing this. Well, yeah, my kid is too. It's sort of normal. Great. When I was a kid, you could walk out and find 20 pregnant women just by throwing a stone down the street. It was the baby boom, and they stayed home. Now it's hard to find to be home for your 17 weeks or your 12 weeks or your 10 weeks or whatever. Like, you know, I'm from a country where you get a year off when you, get, when you have a baby. And every country's like that except for the United States. So how do you find other mothers to do that stuff? Your library improves the quality of life in your community, and they do it with storytelling hours. And how do we tell those stories that people are better and children are better and we can make a difference in their lives just by telling stories? And here we got sex appeal, right? That's what you got in the bottle. So what's the sex appeal of libraries? What's the difference we make? What are the stories we tell? And then how do we get attention? How do we call attention to ourselves saying we're freaking awesome? Look, we make a difference to business. Every dollar you invest in a library delivers $8 in economic return to your community. We're the anchor tenant in all of our communities. How do we say when we uh, partner with school libraries that we increase standardized testing scores by five points, according to the research? How do we say as long as you have a school library, you get a 20 to 25-point increase in standardized testing scores? California shut down every school library after Reagan. Their standardized testing scores have dropped 30 points. There's been several PhD dissertations tying it to the loss of the libraries. The state is measurably stupider because of a stupid public policy. They, and all those kids grew up and elected an action figure governor. And now they got another one. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just, I tease. But how do we sit there and make sure people know that we make a difference? How do we sit there and say, when we're going down that strategic planning slide, we don't cross our arms and say, tut, 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 that kid's going to slice his ass off. They don't know how to search. They don't know how to write. Like, you know, blah, blah, blah. Versus the good librarians who say, stop. I can show you how to do a better search. I can show you how to frame a problem. I cannot answer your question. I can show you how to get the skill to answer the question yourself. You present to me wanting to know the population of China. But that's... No, not, you know, telling the kid the population of China, that's not the learning goal in the curriculum. School librarians know how not to answer someone's question. You know, we go into public libraries and say, well, if those teachers just call us and say they assign something, 
The average public library has 40 schools in its basin. Each of those schools has 20 classrooms. Each of those classrooms has six classes a day in it. So, do you think maybe if they just emailed you the 10,000 assignments a month, you could handle it then, instead of getting the phone calls? It's just a stupid way to think about it. So, how many public libraries have trained everybody in the learning goals of the new national curriculum that every state has commonly, except for Sarah's, Sarah Palin's and Rick Perry states? So, only Alaska and Texas don't use the common curriculum. So, if you sit there and say, gee, over the next four years, we're going to learn grade 9, 10, 11, and 12, and we're going to understand what the learning goals are. So when the kid comes in and asks the population of China, <laughs> what it is it? And so you say, well, gee, well, you say, well, why well, do I know what it is? I looked it up on Google. But I'm, my teacher won't let me use Google. That's right. We weren't allowed to use indexes either. You say, well, let me show you. Come over here to Wikipedia. I'm not allowed to use Wikipedia either. Oh, I'm going to show you a trick. We always went to uh, Britannica, and of course, you're all geeky librarians, so you probably went to the final volume and looked at the footnotes. <laughs> but we can take them to Wikipedia and say, look it, here's the China record. Now go down to the bottom. What do you see? I see footnotes. What do you see in the footnotes? I see the CIA handbook. And then your magic moment as a librarian? Gee, I think the CIA handbook is an authoritative source. You may quote that. Don't tell her you found it using Wikipedia because we're having trouble training the teachers. <laughs> but you're going to be awesome when you grow up because every week when you come to the library, we're going to show you how to do your homework and we're going to transfer a skill to you, whether it's using footnotes or how to frame a search question or how to do stuff because we're awesome and when you work with us, we transform you. It's called transformational librarianship, not transactional librarianship. Google and Bing are transactions. When you work with us, you're magically better. You're a better adult, you're a better voter, you're a better citizen, you're a better person. And we're just at the point now where the internet and technology are in their nice toddler years. And when they're a toddler, we still have some hope and we're not too tired to actually make them better people. Anyone ever had a 14-year-old? <laughs> How easy it is to change them, right? It's, it gets harder the older they get. You know, we got kids have a long attention span, right? All the boomers in the room have like maybe half an hour, and I'm going to go over that. You don't have really good attention spans. You know, we look at kids, like, you know, that boy in grade seven who's playing the video game where he's reading more than girls now. He has episodic reading skills. He remembers things from every level. The average video game takes 40 days to solve. So, you know, they've got pretty awesome attention spans now. And they solve the problems. And it's no different when they're going through all of those levels of that video game to remember something they learned on level 3 and level 6 and level 12 when they picked up the bag of coins and the clue and the uh, knife. And when they got to the Gorgon on level 15 and had to get through the door, that they remembered the riddle clue or, the, or they stabbed the Gorgon and they got through. That's no different than when you're doing experiments and reading articles and you're making a patent to invent a new thing that takes years to go through. We're working with the human genome. Those are episodic reading, episodic experience-based skills that actually work well. Of course, the dominant video game players now are middle-aged women. They buy most of the games, and I know because I'm a male librarian, I know a lot of middle-aged women, and please stop throwing your freaking cows at me. <laughs> Between Farmville and Angry Birds, it's unbelievable what you're doing. So the gift to libraries is the book isn't dying, it's evolving. You know, the, the number of shallow thinkers in our field who are sitting there saying, oh my God, the book's dying. Oh yeah, bullshit. 
We published more books last year than ever before. People read more books last year than ever before. The millennials are reading at four times the rate of boomers. Boys read as much or more than girls now. This is a good news story. I'm a librarian. I care about reading. I don't care if it's on paper. I honestly don't give a damn. I want you reading, and I don't care if it's on a reader. I don't care how you get it. I want you reading because I know you get an experience there. Now, how am I going to understand how this stuff works? So we're about eight years away from fully most of the corpus of information being online. My company announced that we're converting the entire corpus of 19th century literature in the next two years. It's the biggest publishing project in the world, and we're doing it for every single country in the world. We just partnered with Brazil last week. We partnered with China a couple of months ago. We've partnered with Cuba. You had to get special permission to get the Americans into there, so they came in through Canada, like you all do. <laughs> because we like Cuba. <laughs> if you go down to Cuba, all the cows are Holstein. They're all Canadian. They all go moo, eh? <laughs> so when you, get all, when you get the entire corpus of ancient literature back to pre-1900, and then we'll, we'll get the rest of them done and you look at what Google's doing and everything, all the books are going to be online. That's going to fundamentally change the nature of information and discovery and how you read. I gave my son an iPad. He's doing his 18th century literature course right now, so he's got to read 400 books a month for the last three months because he's got to do his comprehensive exams. <laughs> and so he just downloads them all off Ebo and Echo. He came home one day and said, Dad, I found these great databases. And he talked to tell me about Ebo and Echo. And he said, and he said you don't look excited, Dad. I said, what do you... I'll think I do all day. <laughs> when I worked for ProQuest, I was involved in Ebo. Now I'm a Gale. I'm involved in Echo. Now we're doing Neko. Like, honest to Christ, this is what freaking librarians do. Who do you think's paying for your degree? <laughs> because librarians subscribe to this stuff because it matters. History matters. Culture matters. This is what we do. This is how we make sure it's good. And it matters because we get into it in the right kind of immersive discovery experiences. Our users and our customers are improving. The crime rate's down 65%. Once my colleagues, the boomers, got too fat to get through the milk, win milk window to get into your house, the, the, our kids stopped robbing you. They're smarter. They're awesome. Seven, uh, what is it? Well, the girls are awesome. Or is it 70% of universities are girls now? We have a problem with the boys. Like, all of you need to start working harder to deal with the suicide rate in boys, the dropout rate in boys. There's a lot. The boy problem is what's there now. We need to be stronger about uh, getting these kids into university. We need to get better about it. Technology is going social, and we're social institutions. It's finally lined up with things we care about, not retrieval, actually immersing and learning. BC isn't dead. It's evolving. It's more mobile. What does it mean when everything I need is here? Fundamentally different. What does it mean when something vibrates in my pocket and it's news or it's whatever? I love the t-shirt that's got the big pocket on the front so I can hold my iPad in it. <laughs> but there's a very big difference. Like, you know, this is what happened when we went to per when personal computers became family computers. We shared them. You don't share this. If, if I pick up your phone and look at what your music is and what you did, you feel violated because it's very personal. This is what real personal looks like. Now you sit there and see the red, uh, you, uh, the red command. It's not really a command on Facebook, where everything you read is shared with all your friends even when you're asleep. It just suddenly tells people you read that book or that article. 
Have you noticed the red command in Facebook? It's not something you click on and say, I want to tell people I read this. It automatically shares it now. So the social life of reading is moving to another level. Be careful what you read, because it'll be shared with your friends. Stephen read bouncingboobies.com last week. <laughs> it's going to be interesting over the next little while. We know more about our customers than ever before. All, like we, we've got the 4C data about whether customers are happy with the databases you're providing. We've got, it's very positive information about what you do. We've got the uh, sushi counter data about what they're doing with it and how they're doing it. We've got the, uh, you can get a list of all the searches they're doing, and you can sit there and say, oh, look, as I scan the searches, in October, they're doing a lot of Macbeth searches. Well, do you think they might be, that might be the time of year when they're teaching it in English, and that you're aligning with actual curriculum stuff. So talent, insight, community have social value. And we need to tell stories about that, not circulation. Frankly, you, prob you already know that the CD-ROM is ending at the end of 2012. So when all the major publishers stop doing CD-ROMs, what are you going to do? DVD will follow within 18 months after that. If you're in a public library, you know that, what is it, 30 35% of public library circulation is DVDs? You know, wean your founders off of your statistics and start putting them onto your measurements, your impact. Opportunities always exist in times of change. You can say, it's a time of change. I'm going to sample in October how we're supporting homework, because we matter. I'm going to sample in March how we're handling tax returns. I'm going to look at, gee, do we help people with their divorce? What do we do with health? Most, like, you know, a teenage boy is not going to come up to a middle-aged woman on a reference desk and say, hey, I got a rash. <laughs> your online stuff with teen health and wellness, or your whatever, like we know that you know, the fastest growing group of HIV positive people in the world right now is senior citizens. So if you're 65, 70 now, you were the first generation to have the pill when it came out in 1959. So you invented the 60s, you boinked with impunity, you got married, you had kids. So then you went through and stayed married, now you're a widow, a widower, and you're the first generation with Viagra. Only you never went through the period of saying, wear a raincoat. So we have this serious issue that libraries need to push health information differently to teens than they do to adults. So we've been building an experiment in Florida saying, tell us your age, optionally, tell us your gender. And you're going to get a different response on an HIV search than you're going to get as, an, as a grown-up, a grown-up, an aged person, my age. I, I like to call myself middle-aged, but I have to live to be 114, so <laughs> it's not going to work. I guess I'm old now. We love books. This change that's happening is not anti-book. The book, the hybrid environment will continue to happen. But it's, that's fiction. If you're making your decisions about nonfiction based on the immersive, wonderful experience you get and that's something that happens in your imagination, that's not what happens in nonfiction. What's an experience? What's a library experience? What's the experience you're creating? If you're stamping books and counting transactions and circulation, you're not really doing it. What's the impact that you want? What's the experience you're doing? So when we look at the HarperCollins fiasco, we had one major publisher saying, let's try and find a new model for licensing ebooks. And we said, oh, well, let's poop all over you. We're not going to poop all over the five publishers who won't actually sell you an ebook. We're going to poop on the one who's trying to find a new model. So how, how likely do you think it's going to be that Simon & Schuster or uh, Hachette 
or Macmillan are going to work with libraries now. They're not. How are we going to do with Amazon taking all the major authors? And so if you're Baldacci and they give you a big money, why should I license a book to libraries if I can work for exclusively through Amazon and Barnes and Noble is doing the same thing? The Google Bookstore. Or worse, the Google Book Settlement that said, let's give a free station to every library so ALA backed down and stopped their amicus curiae brief in the Google Book Settlement in the court. You all know that that one free station you're getting from Google for all the Google Books includes no printing or downloading rights. We call that, in marketing terms, a Trojan horse strategy. Because I want to tell you, or you just ask yourself, how likely it is that somebody's going to sit at that station and read a 300-page book? And then, and or, or are they going to print it at the FedEx-Kinko's relationship that they've already developed? 24 symbols. What are we doing with book subscriptions? Amazon's done the same thing, the Netflix model, or the Amazon lending thing. I'm amazed at the 11,000 libraries that just accepted the Amazon Kindle link through OverDrive, serving up your patron information that you won't give to the Patriot Act, but you'll give to Amazon. Honest to God, who took their hat off that day? Potter Moore, Bookish. Have you seen Bookish? It launches soon. Bookish is the company that's been built by Baker and Taylor for HarperCollins, Hachette, Simon & Schuster, Macmillan, the top eight publishers, to build a lending, selling, reading model outside of libraries. You're surprised you didn't know that? It's been going for like eight months. Pottermore, anybody, none of you have e-books of Harry Potter, right? And you're looking forward to it. They're exclusively at Pottermore, owned by J.K. Rowling, right? She had to delay doing it because they can't handle the volume on the videos alone and the experience they're creating on top of those books. And Overdrive built it for J.K. Rowling. So it's our vendors doing things differently for different sides of the market. So until you start thinking through how you want books to happen, and do you think there should be laws saying that we can't, that we're, you, why should certain people not be allowed to read a book in a certain format? I put in the Apple iStore. Do you think Apple should be allowed to censor books? They do. They, won't, they, aren't, they aren't allowed to put something in the iStore that criticizes somebody. So Pulitzer Prize-winning books have been banned in the iStore. They banned apps based on politicians because they were criticizing their competitor. Do we think that's good for democracy if reading is edited or censored like that? Do we think Steve Jobs owning the patent on an iPhone or an iBook or owning an iStore should be allowed to tell you what you can and can't read? Because that's what's happening. Why are we being silent about it? And we are being silent about it. California, a little different. You know, Governor Brown has actually signed a couple of decent pieces of legislation that start getting us there. But this is a challenge for us. Books are a bad positioning for us. Librarians are a good positioning. So we go to an article-level universe. You've all done it. How many of you say, gee, the most important thing I need as an improvement to the Gale database is to tell me what article was in front of or behind that article? that I've just retrieved that matches our search criteria. You've gone to an article-level universe. For those of you in academia, you don't take people on tours of your uh, bound periodical collections anymore, right? Mostly because it's a quiet space with good acoustics, no one's there, so that's where the students go for sex. 
because it's absolutely just unimportant anymore. We've gone to a article level universe. Now I want you to say what happens when we put all the nonfiction online. We have nonfiction for centuries. We've said, gee, nonfiction only needs three subject headings. Was the rule, right? Because after all, it should be the number of subject headings is determined by the card being three by five. And that's what should be driving how we should be indexing a book. Now we put the book up there in full text. We have every chapter there. We're going to go to a chapter and paragraph level universe. So on the relaunch of Gale Virtual Reference Library, you can pull out every chapter and every paragraph as a separate Kindle book, EPUB, PDF, whatever format you want. So you can sit there and say, Gail's got all these databases. I want to know all the chapters on my kind of cancer in the oncology, the health encyclopedia, whatever. Or I want to know all the chapters on Lincoln as Lincoln as a president, Lincoln as a freer of the slaves, Lincoln as a Civil War person, or Lincoln as a uh, young lawyer and pull it together and create a new book of just those chapters. So when we move into a chapter and paragraph oriented universe, what's the shift that's going to happen in your space? Because when we move all the nonfiction there, nonfiction does not operate like fiction. Fiction is an end-to-end -end immersive experience that happens better in your imagination when you're on reflected light, e-paper or uh, print. When you're using plasma screens, you have a little bit of light there. You take action with nonfiction. The dynamics of the human brain are you take better action when you're working with asynchronous, asymmetrical information when you have a little bit of light and you get the right endorphins in your brain to answer a question, take action with it. So we're dealing with different form factors that are aligned with the human body. And you're not going to evolve fast enough to, to deal with it otherwise. So chapter and paragraph universe integrated with visuals, graphics, and charts, integrated with video, Putting the video in the page, that's why Macromedia Flash is embedded in the uh, pages of uh, Adobe Acrobat Viewer now. It's also why Steve Jobs wouldn't allow Flash onto the iPad, because he has his own way of embedding video into the page. If you've got a page on how to light a Bunsen burner in a class, you can see the instructions, you can read the stuff, but I think they'll blow up the classroom a little less often if they watch a video of it. Integrated with the social web and interaction and interactivity, so ask yourself how you would enhance a book. I've been looking at some of our new children's books. We have a famous book called The Goldfish Book, and they were showing me the way they're putting it on the uh, Nook and on the iPad. And I said, why are you still using pages? Why aren't we going back to scrolls? So that the goldfish swims over the pages as you read the book. And we gotta challenge every assumption we have about a book now and what that experience is going to be. And how do libraries play that game? Uh, Douglas County Library is setting up their own publishing program and using Adobe Server. How do you support creative writing in your community? People are writing a lot of books now. So how do we frame the ebook issue so that it can be addressed rationally? Fiction, nonfiction, and reading are different things. And if you're going to frame it with your experience with fiction instead of your strength, which is answering questions with nonfiction, then you're not framing the ebook issue properly. Framing it, fiction is one thing, that's our entertainment stuff, it's our cultural models, this is good stuff, but fiction and improving the quality of questions is a different thing. And we've got the long history of improving the quality of questions well with taxonomies, ontologies, classification, cataloging, whatever you want to call it. Librarians love to argue about labels instead of the substantiveness of the question. 
and I don't want to argue about the labels we put on it, I want to say we're just improving the quality of the database so that reference librarians and teachers and uh, information literacy people can improve it well, because that's what we're good at. I do argue one label, don't call it information literacy with patrons. They shouldn't have to admit they're illiterate. It's just a really bad thing to do. And I see so many libraries doing that. It's like if we were running beauty, store, store, beauty shops, we'd call them ugly shops. Just come in, admit you look like crap, and we'll make you look good. And you know, that's not how beauty shops operate. And that, you know, they lie to us. They say, you look fantastic now. I've done a lovely job. Ask yourself, why do people read? And then design your strategies around why they read. There's why they read. That's what the research shows. You can look at it online. It's already up on my blog if you can't figure it out yourself. And there's a couple of slides. Content spam is one of our biggest gifts. So all these slides are content spam sites. That's how you manipulate the Google search engine, right? Search engine optimization and content spam. So you know that when you get your drug and search it online, the first 100 pages of Google results were written by the drug company. When you, go in, when you look at it on TV, they have to tell you when you take that headache medicine you're going to get suicidal thoughts, because that's the law. When you go into a magazine, you see three pages behind every drug ad saying you're going to get suicidal thoughts. Or on TV, they're going to say you're going to get an erection lasting longer than four hours. At first, it sounds like a benefit till you really think about it. <laughs> but when you're online, there's no laws. So I don't have to tell you any of that stuff. So if I'm a drug company and I know the major source you're going to use to say about your drug is you're going to type it in, I can pour it into, I can be direct media, write 10 articles, and pour all 10 into 500 different sites that I own. There's some of them. You'll recognize some of them. Pour it in and give you false, misleading, or biased information about your stuff. If I'm an auto manufacturer, I do that for every car. So anyone who proudly researched what car they were going to buy online, all those sites were written by on behalf of the car companies. If you're buying a toaster, a refrigerator, a washing machine, that's how we manipulate the content. That's how content spam makes it. Direct media alone makes $1.5 billion dollars every quarter in profit, writing content. AOL, Huffington Post are now a content spam company. They write everything under contract with the people who want it. How many of you think libraries should be providing content spam to their companies instead of quality information? One of our challenges at ProQuest, EBSCO, and Gale is making sure we don't license content spam into the databases. And how many of you are saying, well, gee, I want to operate just like Google. Instead of, our stuff is better, we better be freaking proud of it, the 800 librarians who work for Cengage Learning, make sure that happens. The hundreds of librarians who work for all the other companies. There's librarians working in the private sector on the evil side of things. I, I love it when I'm told I'm only motivated by profit. It makes me insane. I, I, you know what? I never think about profit. I just don't. You know, the people who own Cengage Learning do because we're owned by librarians and professors. So they pressure us to have the profit because we're owned by the uh, teachers uh, and municipal employees' retirement funds. So they're the ones who talk to us every three months about whether we're making enough profit to deal with public sector pensions. The rest of us want to make engaging experiences. That's what gets us excited every day. Look at the evolution of answers. You are a salve for confusion and how to make sense of things. So if I need to get a drug, I need to understand how to ask a question of my doctor for my arthritis. I need to understand how to approach my dissertation we're experts at that. We're not experts at what their dissertation's about. We're experts about the process and helping them get there. Why do people ask questions? You're in the question business. You're in the question improvement business. You're not in the access retrieval business. 
what are your top 10 or 20 questions in a public library? And then if you, ha if you know what your top 10 questions are, and I've done the research in a couple of states on this, show me your portal for every one of those questions. If your top question is health and wellness, what does that portal look like? If your number two question is how to find a job, what does that portal look like? How does it make your problem scalable? The average job finding interview takes 30 to 45 minutes. You're not a scalable solution. So what does your portal look like in doing that? If you're in a university and you know one of your top questions is how to do citations, do you throw people into RefWorks and say, here's 300 different ways to do citations, which is the equivalent of taking a six-year-old kid and kicking the mass and then the ass in the deep end of a pool? If you've done it right, then you've surveyed every professor and say, what's your preferred citation method? And you can tell the student, this professor likes Chicago manual style. This professor likes Turabian. This professor likes scientific notation. Here's the site that makes sense of that for you instead of pushing them in the deep end of the pool. So if that's your top questions, how do you make that experience powerful that it dynamically changes and transforms your user into being a better being as they move through life? Or do we keep building these huge messes? So there's the top 13 reference questions from one state I worked in. They're easy enough to find. There's the top 12 hobbies. I did a survey and found out the librarian's hobbies are the same as end users. Surprise, we don't knit more than other people. So what are your top homework questions? What are your top travel destinations? What do you know about your users, and then does that drive your strategy? Because if you're really good at homework, then you better be having the strategies to do that. So this is a picture of a grocery store. I've never cooked a meal in my life. So I go into a grocery store, I don't know how to assemble it, I don't know how to do it. My wife's a wonderful cook. It means I get cleaning the toilet and vacuuming and laundry. But she's a great cook. How closely does your library resemble a grocery store? When I walk in there, am I a good enough chef to actually assemble a meal? Do your end users want a grocery store or do they want a meal? What's their goal? So who are the cookbooks and the chefs that are going to assemble this stuff? And how are your strategies aligned with what the real user need is? You need the big database. You need an info track that holds all that stuff. But we put the tools on InfoTrack so you can build um, persistent citations and widgets and gadgets. We give them away, all that sort of stuff. So you can build an experience that says, this is how you find, this is how you travel to Europe. This is how you do a symbolism essay. This is how you uh, fix your health or buy a refrigerator, whatever you want. Are we building that kind of meal? Or are we continuing to tell people, go into the grocery store, you're on your own, we'll show you how to use a card catalog. Or we'll show you how to search. We won't show you how to find. How do we create an experience portal that actually works? So we build the knowledge portals, the information portals, the computer portals, the, the uh, research commons that actually do stuff. And then we align it with user behavior about what their needs are. So if you know what your top 20 questions are, you've got pretty well got three years' worth of work to actually build some pretty awesome stuff that actually improves your quality of your experience, the, your end user's experience, and your alignment with what the what stuff is. So, be where the patron is. Mobility is important. This is a picture of uh, a fetus holding a, a phone, saying, if you don't have and aren't experimenting with all the free iPhone apps that are happening, we'll give you an iPhone app for all of our databases that is geotag-centered. There's one for all universities. There's one for all K-12 schools. There's one for all public libraries. And there's, and there's an iPad app, and there's an Android app. So it's quite simple to do it for free, to actually start to experiment with his works. It's not perfect yet. 
And librarians keep studying things to death and forgetting that death was not our original goal. Play with it for a while. It improves the quality of your questions about what the next step's going to look like. No one on earth knows what this is going to look like when it's done. No one. The only one who doesn't know anything about it is the ones who aren't playing with it now. The feature phone, the non-smartphone, goes off the market in two years. So if you're still using a flip phone and you're not experimenting with the primary place that people are going to be getting information from, you are delaying your ability to actually participate in the world that you're going to be in. So I'm playing Dutch uncle right now. Maybe I'm being a little too, too aggressive. But realistically, if you're not on Facebook, if you're not using the apps, if you've decided not to be socially connected to your user and you're not using the tools that your users are using, you're going to have real trouble. And don't tell me you're retiring in five years. If, if that's your attitude, then leave now, please, because you're not going to be able to survive. Librarians live until about 104. You look at the LJ obits, we turn to book dust so that our books will smell nice later. The reality is you're going to have 30 years in retirement. Go back 30 years and say, are you deciding not to evolve now? Because 30 years ago, no bank machines, let alone no internet. So there's a lot of stuff that you can't choose not to evolve now. We need to play. When Helen Blowers and I invented 23 things, we created play environments where you can micro-learn to actually build awareness. Or what I do is I get my kids to show me how to do it because I'm <laughs> dumber than them. So here's some stuff to try. My suggestions. I'll, do, I'll end in two minutes. I'll try. Act like a user day. Make all your staff come in the front door Make all your staff borrow a book without phoning somebody saying, go get the book for me and deliver it to me and don't, and don't tell anybody I got it so I have an unlimited loan period. Have everybody get in a wheelchair and roll through your library. Have it act like a user day. It'll create an amazing level of sensitivity to what your users are experiencing. Look at your library. Say, look at all our signs. Why do all our signs say no? And how do we get rid of them? When I walk into libraries, I'm amazed the number of signs saying no. Or you walk by a bulletin board with 300 pieces of paper on it for uh, policies. I'm going, when was the last time you read a 300-page book on a bulletin board? Stupid. Be a librarian for a day. Get a peer counseling, homework counseling set session set up. Look at fraud and ID theft prevention. Do Facebook for teens. Study, sharing, social safety. You know, kids aren't going to come in and do an internet safety seminar. The adults will saying, how do you deal with your work, your reputation, your job? How many librarians do you think are in LinkedIn? We did the count. How many do you think? How many are in LinkedIn? LinkedIn, yeah. We counted them last week at uh, Gale, 149,000. Is that a little more than you thought? I think it's awesome. So top 20 questions, focus, portals, focus group. Do eBay. Show them how to use a digital camera so that old people can sell off their crap. Have a perennial tray, garden day. Have a collection slapdown. Give five groups in your library $2,000 and say, you've got to buy enough books, and then you have to make a good program about it so that the collections are aligned with programs because your programs are what are going to save you, not your books. Research success for adult learners. When we did the studies, we found out that I, had, I interviewed 5,000 librarians a couple of years back, and they all said, yeah, we do great children's story hours, but the parents just think it's free babysitting, and they run outside, and we think they smoke. Direct quote. So that's not what's happening. It's uh, single moms, mostly, and they love the quality of this case, and they're racing upstairs because 70% of people who are doing distance education are single moms. 
They're the sole wage earner, they're getting their extra degree, their extra diploma, they're finishing their BA, and they gotta make it work, and they want their kids to have valuable stuff. So at New York Public Library, when we asked them to put their research success skills training courses on at the same time as storytelling hour, they had to quadruple the number of storytelling hours to handle the demand because they were making a difference in people's lives for the kid and the mom. Now, all of us have a value system in here, that social value system that says, yes, we can lift people up and make them better and the kids better. Download fair, digital days. Okay, from 4 o'clock to 4.30 every day for the... Uh, people who are at work, and from 11 to 11.30 every day for senior citizens, we will sit down with you and show you how to download a book to whatever device you bring in. Why not? For one thing, it forces the staff to learn. (laughs) Or do 23 things the next generation. There's my list of... uh, I keep track of all the value studies so that you can actually talk to politicians about the proofs that we make a difference in all the different kinds of libraries. Anyway, shift happens. We're going through this massive shift right now of what's going on. That's an opportunity. It's great for us. We are entering a period we're moving into a knowledge and information-based economy. After a period of being in a financially-driven economy, the financially-driven economy started with a depression. We had to invent the SEC, the Exchange Act, and all the regulations to stop people with money from going nuts. And so we built this growth in the last century that worked really well. Now... Everything that's going on in Congress and every parliament in the world, everything that Obama talks about, number one on the agenda on every world tour he's done, has been copyright. Copyright is the Bank Act, the Exchange Act, for this century. In an information and knowledge-based economy, copyright, intellectual property, patents are what works. That's our stock and trade. That's what matters. So when we, who, when the MBAs and the CPAs and the banking guys got to be so powerful in the last century, who should be powerful in this century? Freaking hell better be an MLS. (laughs) We know stuff. We know important stuff. So that's the power of libraries. Is it going to be information or clarification? Okay, we're Dorothy. We have the power within us. Glinda the Good Witch is sitting there saying, you've always had the power in you to do this. Just click your heels together, follow the Olympic Road. We don't need to find the Emerald City. We need to make it. We can make the wonderful Emerald City doing more than clicking our heels together. We just need to be there and take the courage to make a difference in this world, and we can do it. And frankly, let's celebrate that when we get over here and buy ourselves a glass of wine and toast ourselves because we're freaking awesome. Thank you. (laughs)